Hey, this is Bridget, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today's episode is exciting for two reasons. One, it's recorded live right here in Austin, Texas from South by Southwest. And two, it's really a celebration of one of my favorite topics, and that is the work life. That's right. We're talking to your friend who reads that late night email when you're having a freak out or responds to your text at 3 a.m. when you're crying in the bathroom. I was joined by three rad ladies to discuss why our work wives are so important. Did you know that women are actually hardwired for friendship? A study by Laura Klein and Shelley Taylor found that when life gets tough, women actually seek out friendships with other women as a means of regulating their stress level. As they put it, women, quote, tend and befriend to deal with tough situations. And if you listen to our episode, Can We Be Friends?, you already know that lady friends are good for your health. In fact, a study by David Spiegel found that the survival rate of women with breast cancer was much higher among those with a strong, supportive circle of friends versus those who lived in social isolation. And beyond that, your work wife is actually good for business. According to a study from the Institute for Operations Research and the Management Sciences, when employers foster an office environment that supports positive social relationships between women coworkers, female employees are much less likely to experience conflict. Now, this is especially true in male-dominated fields. So now you know why lady friends are so important. Now, I was really excited to be joined IRL by some of my newest lady friends, Blair Amani, Fazia Mirza, and Darian Simone Harvin, to talk about our favorite lady friends, both in pop culture and IRL. Enough set up. Without further ado, here's Sminty Live. This is Bridget, and you're listening, or I guess watching, Stuff Mom Never Told You. Um, today I'm really, really stoked to be joined by such an awesome crew of soon-to-be lady pals, I think, and hope. We'll see. Um, if you listen to the show, you know that this was a show that has really been about dynamic women collaborating together. The earlier iteration of the show was two awesome women, Molly and Kristen. Then after that, it was another two awesome women, Kristen and Caroline. Then it was me and my good pal, Emily Aries, who recently left to do her own thing. And what I learned from that experience of working on a collaborative project with a friend is that Lady friends are very important, not just to get stuff done. They're the person who's there answering your email when it's in all caps. They're the person who, you know, answers that group text at 3 a.m. when you are losing your <laughs> uh, They're there for you. And, you know, there's no one I would have rather have done that show with than my good friend Emily. And when she left to go do bigger and better things, I was so happy for her. But it made me want to really uplift and reaffirm the importance of lady friendships. So that's what today's episode is all about. I'm so stoked to be joined by my pals here today. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself? My name is Fazia Mirza. Um, what else should I tell you? Um, tell us your favorite best friend duo in pop culture. Oh gosh, um, I can. I have to say, my favorite best friend duo right now is actually my best friend who lives in Austin. I know that's not pop culture, but it will be because we are pitching a television show. So, uh, but uh, she can't be here right now because she's doing God knows what. But Lisa Donato is uh, one of my best friends and my lady collaborator and buddy that makes everything make sense when nothing else does. That's beautiful. <laughs> Hi, I'm Darian Harvin. Um, I am a digital media and social media consultant, and I live in Los Angeles. I would have to say that my current, like, besides Beyonce and Kelly, 
my favorite kind of like BFFs right now. Does anyone watch Claw or Claws on TNT? Oh, yeah. Okay, so if you watch that show, then th- all of kind of like the main characters and with Niecy Nash are all kind of like BFF lady friends, but specifically her relationship in the show um, with I, I wrote it down because I'm so bad at at actor and actresses names. Um, Carrie Preston and she plays Polly and Niecy Nash plays Desna and I just love the dynamic of how they lean on one another on one another. So they're my favorite in pop culture right now. Awesome. Um, my name is Blair Amani. I'm an activist, uh, Black Lives Matter and LGBTQ rights activist. Um, and I'm also an author. My book's coming out in October. So screw everybody who told me I couldn't write a book because I don't know how to use commas. Um, <laughs> Take still that, don't. English teacher. Not going to learn. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to send them all to my English teachers who are like, Blair, what are you doing? Um, but yeah, I think my favorite, uh, hopefully they can be real people. You said real people. Um, uh, Tegan and Sarah, um, oh. they're siblings. So like sibling activist, like activist dudes sibling best friend duos sorry everything in my mind is activist uh, oriented um, and then also the Lucas brothers who are also a sibling duo mm. I'm just trying to also befriend all of the like indie twin sibling duos right now um, it's going well um, but yeah I just love the dynamics um, my best friend is my younger sister Chelsea who she probably won't agree with me but uh, just kind of like that animosity like don't stand so close to me like that like <laughs> love hate but also I'll have your back no matter what and I will punch your partner in the elevator I'll lust launch. I love it. I love that you brought up, I mean, I'm just going to jump right in. I love that you brought up sibling friendships because I'm a, I'm a younger sister, um, super bratty, all of that. You don't actually see a lot of sibling relationships as friendships on the big screen, right? Usually it's they don't like each other or they only exist because, you know, the sister has a crush on the brother's friend or something like that. Um, so I love that you brought up siblings. Oh, definitely. I think under- like your, your siblings, the way that we were raised, at least, was like, you know, when we're, like when push comes to shove, your siblings are going to have your back no matter what. That's not the case for everybody, but definitely in my family, like... I got beat up by this dude at school and my brother, who was a couple years older than me, he came back to campus and he was like, okay, what's up? Like, what's, what's happening? Yeah. And so it was like just that, that presence, that constant presence, like that's going to outlive, you know, hopefully all of the friendships you have because you, you know, you're born with these folks or raised together. Inquiring minds want to know, did your brother kick that guy's ass? My brother is a pacifist, um, as am I, but he gave him a stern talking to Chelsea. So I have uh, four siblings, Nancy, Marlena, Brandon, Chelsea, um, and we're all pretty spread out, uh, except for me and Chelsea. I would like antagonize people with language, and so would Brandon, and then Chelsea would come in with the muscle. Um, so, But we're all pacifists. <laughs> like it. <laughs> it's so true though that like you don't get to see these like positive female like sibling relationships even though I know growing up and I do have an older sister but with the seven years difference between us it was really hard for us to be friends and you know I grew up in a conservative Pakistani Muslim household so it was like don't tell anybody anything about anything including the people you're blood related to <laughs> right and so so that's been kind of a bit of our struggle but I'm I have to say I'm very excited about um a sibling relationship in a new show uh, that's going to be on Stars, which I, is truly, I think, very exciting and never seen before. It's a Latinx queer show um, called Vida. And um, the two main characters are sisters who come back to East L.A. when their mother dies. And they're so different, And um, but also having to reconnect as sisters in his family. And I got to watch the first two episodes, but I'm just like, yes, we don't see that 
ever. And, and brownness and sisterness and friendshipness, all of that, and queerness in all one space is super powerful and exciting. Totally. I was having a conversation with Jenna Wortham recently on um, from Still Processing, which is a great podcast if you don't <laughs> listen to it, um, so you should. But she was talking about how you don't even kind of realize how sort of traumatic it can be to not see your own story reflected on screen and that when you actually see it, only then are you like, oh my God, I was thirsting for a representation of what something that looks like me. And if you can't see these authentic, meaningful depictions of siblings and friendships you know, that look like you, you kind of don't realize what a big thing that is until you actually see it. So it's very uh, affirming. Yeah, I agree with that. And I also, that experience that you just described actually had that, but with Black Panther. So for me, I mean, obviously that was like a sci-fi Marvel action movie, but I will never forget, I actually went with my parents, they were coming to visit me in LA, and I waited a few days because I wanted to see it with them. And I remember just going up the elevator and thinking to myself, I have never even seen a, a black woman who looks like me portrayed in that way so consistently throughout like a timeline of a movie. And I didn't even... And I, at first, I was even taken aback by it and like a little shocked that at first I had known it, but because I had never truly seen it before in that moment when I finally did it, like hit me like a ton of bricks. And it's it, you're right. Like you don't even really understand like the devastation of it really until it's actually it actually comes to fruition. Totally. That's 100 percent true. Like so we always watch shows like Full House and like uh, the Cosby show and just, you know, all of those shows that were, at, you know, I was born in 93. So we're all reruns at that point. But we would I, we would always watch those shows and I'd be like, wow. And. I actually watched the Cosby show, for example, like so often that I would start to conflate experiences the kids were having with my own life. So I'd be like, dad, remember that time you cut a hole in the middle of the chocolate cake and then stuffed paper towels in the cake and then covered that? And he, he was like, Blair, that was definitely an episode of the Cosby show. And so there was a lot of that happening. But the funny thing was that I felt like those families were so perfect. Like even though in Full House, like there was a different dynamic than most families, like or if whatever that means, you know, like I felt like there had to be the 2.5 kids and the mom and the dad and that any kind of unrest or like, um, you know, growing up with my sister, Chelsea, she's autistic and, um, I'm bipolar. And so I never saw that representation except in that one movie that Shia LaBeouf was in that like did a really sloppy job. Um, or like in Rain Man, just seeing somebody with like a sibling that was disabled. And so especially like in seeing Rain Man, like that was such a traumatic, like vision of what, a family looks like with, um, you know, a disabled child. But my mom would always tell me, like, you know, speaking of stuff mom never told you, my mom, like, I felt like she told me everything. She's like, nobody's family is like what you see on the Cosby show or what you see in the Fresh Prince. Like, everybody's family is a mess. And so that always was very comforting <laughs> to me because when, you know, when crazy stuff happens, like my, um, my grandfather had a lot of kids and so we have a lot of cousins. And when my older cousin started almost dating her cousin, like, that's wild, hilarious That's stuff, stuff that you wouldn't really see on TV. But like, <laughs> it's a relatable, hilarious experience. I thought it was hilarious. She did not. Um, but yeah, like the, the the families we see on TV when we do see families are so non dysfunctional that it's like. It makes you think that your family's the odd one out, but everybody's dealing with wildness. Well, and they're the model minorities, right? So it's like, I thought the same thing. I was like, oh my gosh, why is my Pakistani Muslim family living in Sydney, Nova Scotia, Canada, not like the Cosby show? Because that is what we should be like. And that, and I wasn't even allowed to date like boys, much less have sex with women. And so, 
And so that was such a, you know, departure from any reality. But I just thought that is normal. Why don't we act like that? That is right. And it took years to realize exactly what you're talking about, which is we're all messed up and that is beautiful actually. And the complications of that now I find great joy in. But it took a lot of work <laughs> and there were, there were no depictions. I mean, even now, you know, I mean, it, it's a great time to be, you know, it's real sexy right now to be South Asian and Muslim, or be Muslim. and queer. Oh my, yeah. oh my God. It's like, like the Dina El, El Amin. I think that's her last name on the bold type. Oh, wait. I had just come out as a queer Muslim on Fox News. It was a mess. Hell of a place to come uh, out, by the know, way. <laughs> you know, I always would. You were like, how about I pick a safe place? Right? <laughs> Where people will really embrace me for who I am on Tucker Carlson tonight. And so, yeah, um, you live and you learn. But anyway, so, but when, after that happened, um, the bull type premiered and there's Adina El Amin and like the big tagline is like, well, you know, in my Twitter bio, it says I'm a proud Muslim lesbian. And everybody was like, Blair, you have to watch it. And so I did, but it was like. I was frustrated because I was like, y'all stop like typecasting me. And then I watched it and I was like, wow, like this is really like, it speaks to me in a lot of ways. And so I wrote about it for, um, for glad actually, but it's also like, would we be in this moment if it wasn't so sexy to be Muslim right now? Like it, mm, you know, like it's the, the oppressed group du jour and it's really frustrating to be seen as a token. So out of curiosity, why do you think we're in this moment? What, that that is like a sexy thing right now. Why is I that the end right it's now? Like, like, Judeo-Christian guilt, in addition to white guilt, in addition, it's like, you know, like, it's, it's a similar phenomenon to me from seeing, like, Obama. When I was in uh, middle school, Obama was running for office, and I don't know about y'all, but I was, like, the, all, the, the spokesperson for young black America at the age of 14 when he was running for office. It was like, Blair, what do you think? And I was like, I think that I just want to get my math homework done on time. Like, I don't really care. And so. You weren't a good representative for the entire population. You know, and now, population. I'm, now I'm a public speaker. So, um, it, it leveled up to something, but it's, it's interesting. We have the Muslim ban. And I think that there are people grappling with this idea of like, well, this, this group is being oppressed. And I have biases against them. Let me learn more about this group. And so, um, like right after Trump became president, I had tweeted that I'm afraid this will be the, the, the last time I feel safe wearing hijab. And for a long time it was like, it was a lot of, um, violence happening to Muslim women and still going on, especially in London, like acid attacks where people, um, are, you know, showing that they are not terrorists by show, like by shoving acid into the faces of Muslim women. Um, and so this violence, it, it really culminates into this, you know, people who are in, you know, the silent majority or people who, um, are well-meaning folks who don't espouse like vitriolic ideology who are thinking, what can I do to learn more? What can I do to help? Um, it's like when we saw the phenomenon of people wearing safety pins and then folks realizing, well, that's not doing very much. What can we do in addition? Um, so like subscribing to the safety pin box to learn how to become a better ally, um, through monthly subscription services. So I think that it's a genuine curiosity for some people. And I think for other folks, it's a check, you know? Well, and I think that there's something about the fact that like, you know, given the, 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 the like, I, I can't remember the exact eloquent language you use about like du jour, right? Like, but, but the, the, the social justice issue or the social justice class or the social justice race, you know, whether it's, you know, black people or Latinx people or, um, you know, even right now with the Me Too movement, I mean, I worked in sexual violence for a long time, prevention for a long time. And, you know, right now the fact that people are like, God, this is a thing that's happening. And I'm like, yeah. And it's been going on since humans were invented by 
whatever you believe in, right? And so this is not new. This is not a new thing. And so, so, you know, I think post 9-11 is kind of when, you know, as a, a South Asian Muslim, I remember a Pakistani Muslim, I remember before 9-11, there was the, where's Pakistan? <laughs> Post 9-11, it was like, oh, I know where you're from. I know where you're from. And I was like, okay, thank you. Oh, what thank I get you. now, I converted two years ago. And now people, it's so funny. Like, I, I do, I tweet about it a lot. But, like, people want me to be where they're from. Like, if they're, you know, if they're immigrants, they're like, I've seen this oh, on your yeah. Twitter. I've Sister, seen this. are you from Egypt? And I'm like, no, I'm just regular black. Like, <laughs> regular, regular, I don't know regular. what to say. Like, yeah. and people are so upset I don't speak Arabic. And then I'll meet folks from Pakistan. And they're like, oh, are you from, like, the Pashtun region? And I'm like, no. <laughs> but I know where that is. Like, it's so awkward. And it, it's interesting because people, I think people want to be, they want to be conscious, right? And they want to show you that they're trying. And then it turns into assumptions that you don't speak English, but well-meaning <laughs> assumptions that you don't speak English. Um, oh yeah, I get spoken to in like every language that is not mine, which is like <laughs> English, Urdu, and maybe French because I'm Canadian. But that's, and maybe Canadian. Some people think that's a language. Um, but it's never, it never works. And, and I'm like, no, sorry. I'm, I'm just Pakistani. And they're like, oh, are you okay? <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm doing great. Actually, I have a lot of joy. I love you and I love all of us, but, but it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I think part of the, part of the power of whatever it is happening right now is how can we use that? to transcend the narrative, transcend and create space for us. Because we, as us, we've always been there, right? It's not like gay people were just invented, you know, when, when the Ellen mainstream. Yeah, when <laughs> Ellen came out, it's like, oh my God, gays are well, welcome gays. <laughs> you know, we've always been here. And one of the things I love to talk about is, you know, when, you know, the, the people who built the Taj Mahal, you know, the, 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 the harems. I mean, the harems were not just, you know, women. There were people of all different intersectional spaces, queer people, trans people, um, the oldest religion and one of the oldest religions in the world. I mean, Hinduism, there are trans people in, in the, the, the Ramayana. And so what it is, is that like in a post colonization world, we're kind of just getting to a place where we can revisit where people of color come from and our stories and our power. And so, um, yeah, let's let's enjoy that. Y'all, this is a good time to be alive. <laughs> it does feel like a really interesting time. Something that you both mentioned earlier was sort of seeing the Cosby show and being like, oh, this family kind of looks like mine, but is different from mine because they're squeaky clean. And I wonder, you know, you brought up Ellen. Um, some cultural critics have actually said shows like the Cosby show helped sort of America imagine what black upper middle class folks looked like. Um, some folks would say like shows like Will and Grace help people imagine what gay people looked like. I'm not sure how I feel about those comments, but part of me wonders, is, is there some truth to that, that in this moment where, you know, Muslim folks and queer folks and folks of color are sort of having a, a moment in pop culture, is there something to be said for the fact that that might help folks who otherwise wouldn't be able to say, like, oh, there's a Muslim girl in my school, help them humanize us in a way that they couldn't before? Or is it just tokenization and it's bullshit? Well, I think about blackish right now that, you know, I, I, I often... What I always try to remember about when we have movements or moments within culture is that typically it's not the first time that it's happened, right? And so for me, I think about a show like Blackish, where even just on a personal level, definitely elements of those characters and that family dynamic that were a lot like mine. 
would I like other people who don't look like me, white folks, to watch that show, especially kids, and to take something from those family dynamics? Absolutely. For me personally. Um, but I think it also just depends. I think that there is something to be taken away from, um, a lot of these, a lot, a show like Blackish, even if we're just, if I'm going to focus on that, um, because of the way that they do portray black life and the dynamic of that. And I think that they also do a good job of not just showing one version of it. I like how, uh, Anthony, I'm so bad at actors' names, but the, (laughs) but the husband, you know, like he doesn't come from the same background as Tracy Ellis Ross. They're trying to raise their children. Um, in an upper middle class family with some morals and they also have mothers and fathers-in-law who also didn't grow up the same way as them either and they're immersed into the show so I don't know when I think about shows like that I am okay with what people are going to take away from them and And yeah yeah, I think definitely that's very true of Blackish. Like, I almost don't watch Blackish because it's so similar to my family and it's mm. a little jarring. I like, understand that. they sound amazing. Can we all come over? <laughs> oh, totally. <laughs> if you're ever in Los Angeles, everyone listening to this podcast, you're invited Party over to dinner Claire's. at my mother's house because if I've spoken to you once, you're my best friend in her mind and we can all hang out. Um, she'll listen to this podcast and she'll be like, that's true. Um, but with, with the, the Cosby show, I think that it's really like you're hearing more about folks who were on the Cosby show and were dealing with the sexual violence that Bill Cosby was perpetrating. And so when it comes to the Cosby show, like it was such a respectable version of black identity, right? And, and in uh, pursuing the protection of that, so much stuff was swept under the rug. So I think that while there was good that came from the Cosby show, if we're pursuing this like idealized vision to the point where we're silencing people who are going through violence, that's not okay. And so that's with any TV show. Like um, if somebody's, it happens a lot with child actors as well who go through like the worst treatment as young people in these spaces with a lot of predatory adults and it's swept under the rug to maintain the squeaky clean image of the child but meanwhile people are suffering so I think that looking at the Cosby show in full context it makes it so much more insidious that it was the squeaky clean image but I think that shows you know for for a lot of people that show was the first entry into like the black identity or the black experience and, and doesn't, I, doesn't that sort of just go to show how important these representations are for us that I completely agree a lot of people did they were really quick to sweep that abuse under the rug and not believe it and like all of these allegations came forward so it wasn't he said she said it was he said she said she said she said she said she said and still she said she said she said you know ad nauseum still people were plugging their ears i know i know black folks today that still don't believe it i know people today who were still like well cosby was trying to buy nbc and you know they won't let a black man be successful so they had to take him down and it just goes to show that we as as people of color are so thirsty for representation that when we get something that feels meaningful we will do anything to protect that image even if it's you know toxic and violent well, i don't it's, know oh sorry go ahead. oh i was gonna say i mean it's 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 so complicated too because you know it's it's the black representation and we do crave those heroes and we want those people but on top of that then it's also the fact that like sort of living in this very patriarchal misogynist culture we believe well I don't want to say we, but our culture believes uh, the heteronormative male experience over everything else. The heteronormative white male experience over everything else. And so, you know, even just thinking about rape culture and thinking about, um, you know, uh, the, 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 um, the rape is one of the least reported crimes. Sexual harassment. Yes, we have the Me Too movement, but think about 
the privileged, most powerful women had to come forward for this to matter. And this is something that's been happening to women across culture, across race, across religion, uh, constantly consists and is still happening everywhere. We just suddenly care about it because it's these, you know, and it doesn't make it less painful for the survivors. But what it is, is that suddenly we care because it's people we know and they're celebrity and they've made it. So, so it's race coupled with our inability to believe in rape culture. I think for me, um, I have like the, the name of the podcast written on my notebook, but like, my mom told me so much stuff. Um, like when it came to like R. Kelly, for example, we were not allowed to listen to that in our house. Not at all. Like my mom was very acutely aware of the way that he treats young women, continues to the predatory nature of R. Kelly and everything that that stands for and the way that you're signing on in a certain way by engaging with that content. Um, and so it hasn't been until recently I felt where my family wasn't the odd one out. Like suddenly when that came on at barbecues over this past summer, people were turning it off. And that's thanks to the work of folks like Jimmy Lemieux who are writing about this predatory, um, his predatory behavior, which has gone on for decades now. And so, um, I think that my parents were always like very hyper feminist. My name is Blair because it's a unisex name and you'll have an equal opportunity until you get to the door. Your like, family sounds wow. rad. They, yeah. they'll probably get their own podcast. Um, but it's, it's really interesting. Like the way that my mom responded to that, like if R. Kelly came on, she would just be like, turn that off. Like he's a, and you know, so much of that was true. And I felt like, Oh, my mom's so ridiculous shielding me from rape culture, <laughs> but you know, I didn't even think of it that way. I just thought like, well, my mom won't let me listen to happy people or I believe I can fly. Like what the heck? But (laughs) she was very adamant about us not engaging with it. Um, and so I want to have a conversation with her about like the Cosby show and how she feels about that now when she was so, uh, when she cared so much about it, it was so important to her to keep us from that type of, um, that, that issue. I want to say something that I'm not proud of now that I'm real woke. This is a safe space. Uh, but I, I, I do live in Chicago. I'm originally Canadian, but I, I, I moved to Chicago a long time ago. Uh, I'm not born in the same year as you are, Blair. Uh, 1993. Yeah, not 1993. Although I can play 25 to 40. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, in living in Chicago, I, I went to law school there. I was a lawyer for a second. Don't judge me. Um, now I'm an artist. Artivist, but um, I did. I was hanging out with these women who were like, "We're going to R. Kelly's house on the South Side of Chicago," and this was after the 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 allegations were out, and um, we had to sign waivers to in the car to enter the property and the premises, and you know, I I didn't. Really, I, I didn't know. I honestly, like, I was such a part of and brainwashed by culture and the mainstream spaces and, you know, someone who deeply didn't even understand the concept of consent at the time and the concept of just being a human woman who is, has agency in the world. And it's been years of processing and doing this kind of work and, uh, working with so many different kinds of people, um, across intersections where I'm like, oh my God. That is not okay. And I would never do that again. But that is a true thing that after those allegations came out, that was something you had to sign to get in the same space with this human person. Um, and, um, 
Yeah, I don't know. It's and, and 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 I know plenty of people who to this day still will say, yeah, but I was trapped in the closet too. And I'm like, okay, great. R. Kelly's, you know, and they love they love what he stood for, and they're like, no, but he is this strong man, strong black man doing this work, and he was framed. I don't know. I'm trying so hard to relate relay this some way to to BFS. I know I we've gone off the rails, it. but it's, know, such, it's such a good conversation. But I'm like, let's, yeah, I, let I, it happen. I keep on trying to, and I'm like, I, I keep on pulling myself away because I'm like, that's that's not it. Well, I think there. that's something that's important in this safe space. I'm the queen of spin, so watch this. Okay, um, I think that's something that's important to remember like, you know, in these safe spaces and in this idea of wokeness is that we're all growing and changing and that nobody was born woke, but we have to constantly like stay woke and learn new information and affirm new identities as we like learn of them and as folks get new power. And I think that friendship is such an important space to practice that. So let's talk about friendship. I love it. That is, that was so good. That was eloquent. Thank you. Artful, Blair. (laughs) Artful. I think that's real. Um, I think that for me, in my best friendships, I know that they are strong when my friends can sort of, I don't like, to, I don't like to use, to use the phrase call me out, but call me in. And I will share in the, in the spirit of like safe spaces, <laughs> I will share a time when I was really intensely called in by someone and that was because they were my friend. And so if y'all watched that show, Project Runway, way back when, like in the early days, it was the best, right? I think it's still on, but back in the day, it used to be like really popping. And there was a uh, contestant on the show who used to use a, he was a gay white male. He used to use a, like a transphobic slur relatively often. Like it was like kind of his thing. And you know, this was years ago. This was before, like, that was kind of newly woke. I was like, oh, that's such a, a clever catchphrase. And so I thought I will use it too, right? Like he's gay, like, it's He's probably, tangentially related yeah, to the trans like, community. In my mind, you know, I was, I was sort of figuring this out. I was still grappling with like what it means to be someone who is intersectional. And so, you know, I thought like, oh, this, like, this is, has to be a, an okay word to use. And it took a friend really pulling me aside and saying, you need to understand why this is f-ed up and not okay. And honestly, you know, when someone calls you out for something or calls you in, you have that moment where you kind of freeze and you, your first instinct is to be like, but I do so much for the community. Like you like, you like, I mean, I, everyone does it and it's, I have friends that are right. Exactly. Like you go through this like checklist of like why all of the reasons why you're the best and you've never made a mistake and all the things you've done. And like, here's all, here's all my receipts for like how I'm super woke, but you have to sort of work through that and it's tough and it's scary and it takes a lot of introspection but he was right. He was super right to, to call me in. And that was an act of friendship and love. And, you know, that was probably scary for him and tough for him to do. And I'm so thankful that our friendship could sustain that kind of thing. Because honestly, he made me reflect on something that I didn't even know I was doing that was f***ed up and hurtful and like violent, right? Like I didn't even know. And that's not an excuse, but had he have not had enough respect for me and respect for our friendship to do that, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't even want to know like what I would be saying now. I mean, it really was a moment of like, just because you are into Black Lives Matter and into, you know, are woke on Twitter or whatever, doesn't mean that you don't need to look at your own behavior and your own actions and your own sh- Oh my gosh, that's basically one of my favorite things in the world is like, especially when you are like sort of someone who is like in these intersectional spaces, 
truly, everyone's like, no, you're gay. It's cool. You can say whatever you want. No, you're Muslim. You are cool. You are a oppressed group. Oh, you're South Asian. People hate you because you, they think you're a terrorist. And it's like, no, no, no. Every single one of these groups, any of them, is not necessarily as woke just by virtue of their identity. And it's so important to have some people. And I honestly think that like one of the best things we can do as individuals, but also like through those friendships is transcending the noise and transcending all of that and finding that space. And I think friendship is one of the greatest ways we can do that. And, uh, you know, and one of the people I talked about was one of my collaborators, Lisa Donato. And like, she is truly someone who I look, and she's so different than me in the respect that like, she's a white, you know, Montana born <laughs> queer lady. Um, and, but one of the things we connect on is heart and we feel deeply, we cry a lot together. <laughs> um, and, and it's that thing where it's like, is it okay to cry? Yes, of course it's okay to cry. Is it okay to have these deep connections with other people? Yes, of course it's okay. And through that, we, you know, sometimes, and this is something that as a queer person, when you have an intense female connection with someone, it's real easy to think, or other people to say, oh, well, you must be attracted to them and you want to have sex with them. No, no, I don't want to have sex with them. I just connect with your soul. And I believe in soulmates that are not all romantic. I believe in that deep, deep spiritual connection with a human being because you just move in the same way. And she is one of those people for me and is one of my, my greatest creative collaborator and, um, makes me a better person. And actually at South by Southwest, I feel like has saved me from some, you know, some tragedies <laughs> already. I think um, for me, one point where I've like really had to like evaluate my frame of understanding around race, especially was um, in a way where I didn't even know, like I had areas of like bias, I guess, mm-hmm. like valid distrust um, of folks in the white community, you know, but I was at a Black Lives Matter protest and in Baton Rouge in 2016 and I got arrested and um, all that happened. Um, and then I got into the police vehicle and I, we're all giving our names and you have to give your name, your, your sex and your race. Um, and people are, you know, giving their name and then like, I'm hearing blah, blah, white, blah, blah, white, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm the only woman of color in this car. Mm. Um, and so it was different from what, you know, what you would imagine people who are getting arrested at a protest would be, you know, potentially, especially around the murder of a black man at the hands of police. Um, and so I had to like unpack that as I was, you know, getting, we were, we went to Baton Rouge Parish prison. Um, and I got really like to know these people. And a lot of the women were in social, social work and social justice who are educators who are working with young kids every day who look like the kids that are getting, you know, killed either, um, through, community or you know through gun violence or um by state violence and so that was really interesting for me um and something that really resonated with me was um, my friend taylor who we've become very close now like after you go through that kind of experience apparently you get very close with people um and so with taylor she was there because her father and grandfather were very against integration and so her grandfather, you know, there's still probably black and white pictures of him yelling at people who are trying to integrate schools. And so that sat very uh, heavy on her heart. And we're both women of faith. She's Catholic. And she felt like she had to do something to, you know, repent for the sin of her family being racist. So she was in the streets and she ended up going to um, to Standing Rock 
and like working with the, the folks in the native community there. And I think she's still up in South Dakota. So she's like totally like changed the, the trajectory of her life and realizing like, I have this privilege, like I have a trust fund, like let me change the tra- trajectory of my life and use this to advance justice because my family hasn't done what we needed to be doing. And in my mind, I'm thinking like, wow, like, what is it like why don't I think this couldn't even exist and so that was a really beautiful moment of growth for me because I realized I was shutting myself off from a whole community despite myself being half white let's take a quick break and we're back Um, so the data around friendships actually shows that in spaces that are like workspaces or activist spaces or community building spaces, friendship, like you just described, is actually super, super important. And so I know that for myself, um, something about me is that before I ever got into the podcast media sort of game, I was an activist and an organizer. And before that, I was a teacher and I, I taught at Howard University in DC. Go Bison. H-U? You know. <laughs> I went to Howard Law School for seven weeks. <laughs> We need to get this story because we've got, we've got like, I love it. I love it. Um, but so, you know, Howard is this place where it's an, it's an HBCU, a historically black college. And it's a kind of place where the students are activists, right? Like these are young people who really feel compelled to make change in their community. So I was a, I was a lecturer there, but I also felt like I was kind of an organizer. Like I taught classes on social change. It was a kind of, kind of classes where you read like rules for radicals and then used it to write a paper or something like that. Right. So the law school is not like that. Yeah, it's not. (laughs) It is not. And, you know, for four years, Howard was my radical black organizing home. It was like where I felt where I became myself. Right. These young black and brown students who felt so compelled to change the world like they were. They were, they were my home, right? It just felt like home. And the, it was the best job I ever had. I was that like crazy teacher lady who had a license plate that reads love to teach, like literally. Um, so that was me. I was that person and I loved it. But it was also the kind of job where like I knew, you know, without a PhD, I would never be able to move up. The pay was kind of janky. Like it had its downsides. And so I ended up getting a job at a mostly white organizing training organization called the New Organizing Institute that basically trains Democrats organizing, like organizing principles on how to win elections. And so it's really tied to the Democratic Party. It's super mainstream. It's a great organization, but it was very different from my Howard home. And so I wrestled with this choice of do I leave Howard my sort of you know, do I leave the community? Do I leave my yeah. community? Yeah. Or do I go to this sort of super white, super mainstream, you know, Democratic Party funded? Not that there's anything wrong with that, but like that 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 meant something to me. It felt a, a kind of way that you know most of our money was from the, the DNC, um, and I left. I went to that job, and the first week was hell. Right? Like I was like this black girl who really, really desperately missed home. I felt like, you know, I felt like I had moved or something. And I remember riding my bike past Howard University and like having to get off because I was crying because I missed it so much. But the thing that kind of reaffirmed the importance of what you were just speaking about is the day that they announced that they would not be, that there would not, that uh, George Zimmerman would not be getting, you know, charges for murder. I was working at that organization and there was this, I live in DC and there was this sporadic activist moment where all of these organizers went to the park, Malcolm X Park in DC to protest. And it was just this spontaneous rally where everyone was just, it was a powder keg of anger and just, we were all just pissed off. There's like no other way to say it. DC was pissed off. 
And I'll never forget, you know, walking on the streets and bumping into four of my white female coworkers at this protest. And I burst into tears. I thought, you guys are, y'all are here. And it just felt like they were here for me. And it felt like I had spent this, the entire week crying about this choice to leave Howard, really beating myself up about leaving my like scrappy, black-led, radical organizing home for this very polished, you know, button up. It wasn't that bad, but like, you know what I mean? Uh, when I, when I saw them there, it was like they showed up for me. And I can't even describe what that felt like for me. And so what you're speaking about, that, that moment where it reaffirms like, hey, we can be friends and come from these different backgrounds and we can cross these boundaries. And that's so important for how we show up, how we show up for each other is so important. And definitely, yeah, it was a really important moment in my life. I felt the the same way. Like when, um, I started, like I had written all these articles. I'm weird where like, if I'm having like, if, if we're like friends, we're coworkers, I will be very silent about everything I'm doing. And then you'll be like, Blair, I read an article about how you're scared to like go home on the train with your hijab on. And I was like, yeah, you know, personal stuff. Same. <laughs> it's like, it's like, you'll do things. It's like the like, anonymity. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm sorry to cut no, you no off, but, but, it, but it's just like you'll kind of, I, I very much feel that way in my workspace. It's like I go in to do my work and to be an excellent teammate and to do my work very well. And then it's like, oh, you have a podcast or, oh, you did this or, oh, I, you're going to be at South by, but not for the company. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, it's very much those moments. And yeah. so when then you have people who, I think the fear for me is like rejection. Like what if people think that I'm weird, you know, um, or what if people find out I'm dealing with this stuff and. They don't feel like they can be on the team with me because um, I'm too distracted. Um, I've gotten that before, but, you know, too distracted by oppression to do the job or whatever. Um, and which is valid. I have ADD anyway. So um, <laughs> when I um, but no, when I wrote this article for Vice about how I stopped wearing hijab right after Trump got elected, uh, my coworker had read it because we like, you know, when you were I worked at Planned Parenthood in the communications office. So everybody has media alerts for everybody else to make sure that, you know, there's no scandals, but also to like support the, the good work you're doing. Um, and so somebody got the media alert and then had, uh, my friend Lori actually, and then send, sent out an email to everybody on, in our department, like, Hey, if Blair's going home, like ask her if she needs a, like a walk to the, to the train. And so that was really powerful for me because I didn't like fathom that that would exist. Like I had just converted to Islam. Like I didn't even, I didn't even know what support looked like and somebody who cared about me and now we're really good friends. Like we'd met in the workplace, like one that's not supposed to exist, like, you know, deep friendships in the workplace, like in the midst of all of the election stuff. Um, and somebody just to be like, I care about you and we want to take care of you. Like that was really important for me. Um, and really transformed what I feel, what, you know, we talked, we talked about TV at the beginning, but it's not, it's rare that you see that like again with the bold type which I, apparently I stand for like I love the bold type but they have these three women who um are working in the same place and they're constantly dealing with what does it mean when you get a promotion but I don't what does it mean when you get a raise but I don't what does it mean when you don't feel safe walking home but I do and so the way that privilege operates amongst these friendships even in the workplace is something that's been really beautiful to see I love that Oh I was just going to say like it's there's something so I mean, there is this thing, like thinking about friendships, but thinking about these spaces where, you know, 
when we talked about like, oh, you know, Fazia, can you do this podcast? Like, I was like, okay, well, why the thing with women, like right now we're in this moment of time where women are coming together. But the thing is women do come together, but it's not cool or sexy for us to come together because when we come together, we're either lesbians, which by the which way is, is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Go lesbians. Go lesbians. <laughs> but like not cool in some spaces, many spaces. Um, but also seen as um, not great for the male gaze and not great for men and the heteronormative man. And, and, and I think that's kind of what it comes down to sometimes is that why are, is it us looking out for each other not cool or safe or accepted or beautiful We're or talking powerful. about wages like talking about wages that whole idea of being quiet about yes. how much you make like there's an amazing uh, organization called ladies get paid look them up if you can they're they're disrupting so much that people are like adamant to shut them down but they're all about like talking to women about what it means to talk about wages and like you just got a raise well what does that mean for me when we were at Planned Parenthood Lori and I um, when we were talking about how much we make and I was like oh what like you I know that you are here way later than I am like let's talk about that. So we both went to our manager and then Lori ended up getting a raise. And so this stuff can't happen. And it's like you you can't just be in it for yourself. I mean, like sometimes economically you have to be, but if you're in a position of privilege, then sometimes that friendship needs to be an accomplishment mm-hmm. where you're looking at, well, my success is inherently tied to your success. So let's yeah. fight together. I love that. Yeah. I swear I didn't plan this. I also worked at Planned Parenthood in DC when you were in New York. The same exact thing happened to me with my, oh my I guess, work wife where she told me how much she made and we were doing very similar jobs. And I was like, well, if she makes that, I should make that. And I got a raise because because she told me how much she made. And she's a white woman. And I think she saw it as a way of being like, yo, just so you know, here's what I make. So when you're in the negotiation process, you know, have that information. And honestly, for the dudes out there, tell women how much you make. This is unrelated, but... Not like in a braggy way, but no, like... No, but tell women how much you make so they can get their money. Well, I was just in a panel um, that had, you know, the co-president of... Uh, 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 Warner Brothers, uh, the head of TNT, the showrunner for Claws, one of the actresses from Claws. Oh my God, I should have been there. I know, it was amazing. <laughs> Where it was were you? Two Love days ago. <laughs> it was an amazing panel, but one of the things, uh, and I cannot remember which of the amazing women on the panel said this, but she took out the men first. She took out the men because A, the women were not making that much and were not like at that level, but also you know, there's this fear of sharing because it's like, oh, well, there's only one spot. There's only one spot for anybody. If there's only one spot for a woman, I want it versus someone else wanting it. Like, there's only one spot for a queer Muslim on a panel. I know. And there's two of us. Like, these are weird unicorns (laughs) right now, you know? But like, but that also is a testament to where we're at and to you as well. But, but for that, she took out the men and the men told her, it wasn't easy. It took a minute. The men told her how much they made. And so when she went in for her promotion, she had the highest level of the male salary. And that is what she ended up making. Yeah. But it took that. And it's powerful. And it's beautiful. And the things we don't talk about our money sometimes, our love, our relationships. And these are the most important things that affect us the most. And so, like, who are our best friends? Like... I think that can transcend, that can be multiple different kinds of people in space. Yeah. And something that you even said earlier about how it hasn't been sexy, it hasn't been attractive to kind of show sisterhood or to show friendship within the workspace. I I feel like I think a lot about why that is, especially 
being a millennial, like I'm just going to say the curse word, right? It's like, I love millennials. <laughs> yeah, Avocado because, toast. Thank you, millennials. <laughs> thank you, millennials. You're understanding intersectionality yes. better than most people yes. I know. Exactly. And so there's two things I think about when you're a millennial and you're trying to have a career. One thing is for me, it's like, we're so driven and we are, we want to have impact and we want to do it as quick as we can. Sometimes that's a bad thing. And sometimes it's just like an earnest desire to get something done. But then the, the second part of that is because is that, that makes things complicated is that we also know how to get things done very quickly as opposed to maybe a job or a task or a goal that may have taken someone who, um, who had been through the workforce a lot longer than I had. They have their own process for getting things done, but there's a chance that mine may be a little bit quicker just because of like the technology or the way that I think about getting things done um, or like what I see as my resources. And I think that in those moments, friendships can become sticky. Um, Whether it's you're talking about wage, whether you are bouncing back and forth, how should I communicate this message with someone who I'd like to have a cold email with or this really popular, cool person who I want to work for and happens to follow me on Twitter, who I feel like I can reach out to. Like there's just, I, I just I did that feel with you. Like, <laughs> you were yeah. you, you were the popular cool person that I cold emailed. <laughs> yeah, but and it's like and it's uh, but your, your approach right was like well I know who Bridget is and I think she's doing really cool work and it's like you know I, I just really think that in these moments like to kind of bring it back to why work friendships are so important. It's because while we're trying to navigate this space and when sometimes there are a lot of chairs at the table and sometimes there aren't, I always really try to remember that the career stuff is really cool and it's really popping and it's really great. But that at the end of the day, I really do just like want a, a friend. I love Seriously, that. Seriously, you know, like I really do just want to have a friend and like, <laughs> that, that, I mean, that's really the end of my sentence. Here to make friends. Yes. No, I love it. Here to make friends. You need somebody, I think, especially as like a millennial of color, it's like you need somebody that you can call and be like, okay, you were in that meeting. Was that racist? Yeah. Or like, <laughs> we you're in that meeting. Whole, is that was racist it Islamophobic? <laughs> was it queerphobic? Like with me, it's like a Rorschach test. Like who knows what, what the ism was. And so like, that's what Lori was again, like Lori Rodriguez was for me, um, working at Planned Parenthood. It was rarely, you know, it was a great place to bring your full self. But again, we have these external meetings and sometimes things would go sideways and it can really be, uh, especially when you're dealing for, with something for the first time, like those moments in the like workforce where you've been told your whole life, it's going to be hard to be a woman. And then you get there and you're like, wow, I'm invisible to men, like <laughs> that type of thing. And so it's, it's just great to have somebody who's been there before, or who can give you like an, um, what's it called? Who can back you up? Somebody who can give you an objective opinion about what you've gone through and really just like, be like, Hey, as a friend, let me, you know, tell you right. this email totally. was sideways, this email is good, you know, just right. somebody to be there for you. Totally. I want to tell one quick anecdote and then I want to kick it over to questions. Um, I think something that really speaks to what all of y'all are saying is a little bit of a weird example, but do y'all remember back in the day how these two black powerhouse models, Naomi Campbell and Tyra Banks, were always yes. sort of, like they were pitted against each other, like there was this big feud, it was always like, Tyra hates Naomi, Naomi hates Tyra, and it was this real thing in in the in the media that was like, oh, they hate each other, they're very catty. I'll never forget when Tyra had her show, Naomi Campbell came on her show and I thought, oh my God, this is it. Like, they're going to have it out. It's going to be juicy. It's going to be catty. They might physically fight. Like, what's going to happen? <laughs> and I, 
I was like totally that person who wanted to see what you were just speaking about, right? Let's like tear each other down. Yeah, like women. I was like, ooh, this is gonna be good. Like I was could not wait. And the conversation that ensued was really about how they both felt pressured to by the modeling industry to hate each other because there was only one slot for a black model. And the conversation wasn't about this like juicy catty feud. It was about how this up racist industry profited off of people thinking that they hated each other and how they really didn't hate each other, but they were pitted against each other purposefully so that they, you know, because that's how the industry works. And it really made me think, like, why why was I so excited for this, like, juicy cat fight that actually was a really meaningful conversation? I mean, it's sort of, I mean, it goes back even further, right? I mean, like, the Betty and Joan show, like, you, the that television show, I mean, you watch it and you're like, oh, okay. These two women were literally pitted against each other by an entire industry of men, you know, who who were saying this is going to be really good for our ratings. This is going to be really good for sexiness, for the story. And and I think part of it is that we yes, we want that one slot like, you know, you know, like we want the one. And and I I keep I mean, had I heard there was another queer Muslim, I would have objected. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Right. No, but it is. It's crazy because it's like in some ways. In some ways, being a queer Muslim, for me, people are like, oh, you're a unicorn. You're special. You're sexy. We want to talk to you. And friends may have said that before, but a larger audience didn't give a shit before. And then, so there's space for one. And then for me, like, seeing that you're a queer Muslim and you've been, you know, Muslim longer than I have, so I've been Muslim for like three years. That means I'm older. (laughs) (laughs) No, but that you've been in the industry. Brown don't frown, y'all. Brown don't frown. you've been out, you've been vocal, like you've been doing this thing. It's a relief to me because it makes me feel like I don't have to do it on my own and that I'm not like the only one. And so it's so, it's we're so in this together, yes. we're in this together. It's so powerful just to see like, cause like you have a lot of folks, like I have a lot of folks looking up to me. I'm sure like you, I look up to you. Like it's really, it means so much when you see somebody who's like, okay, they've done it. They've survived. I can go. I can keep going. Mm. I just had that experience. So uh, I went to Berlin Ale in Berlin the first time ever. And I watched the MIA documentary. MIA, for people who don't know. Is I this- fly like paper, get high like <laughs> There you go. There you go. This amazing Sri Lankan, like woman, British Sri Lankan woman. And I watched her documentary and I was like, oh my God, I didn't realize how sad I am about there not being positive South Asian strong role models who, you know, role models are our friends too, right? Like it's like in, 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 cause not all of us get the privilege and opportunity to be in spaces where there are people who look like us. So when there are people aren't who don't look like us, yes, now we have social media, but we look to faces and MIA was like this face, but in many ways society and the press were like, Bye, girl. Like, bye. You did this. You're rapping and you're not black. Bye. Bye. Or you flipped off the media at, you know, uh, 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 you're being yourself. How dare you? How dare you? Everybody, like, I think that's so, so frequent. Even when you do get to a point of being a role model or like in the workplace, potentially when you like show like initiative and you take initiative, there's so many people who not maybe because like they want to take you down, but you're, you're deviating from the norm. And so people get very upset and they want to push you back into that box that you stepped out of and so i think with mia as well like they want to put you back in that place that you don't even belong in and so that's why i think role models are so important and how best friends can support you as you start to break down those uh, expectations i love it very well said let's take a quick break 
and we're back. So I want to kick it over to the audience for some questions. Questions, comments. What do we got? What do y'all think? Hi. Tell uh, us your name and where you're from. I'm Alex. I actually just recently moved to the Austin area. Um, so first of all, y'all are great. Thank you. <laughs> Thoroughly enjoyed all of this so far. Um, I, I feel like I vacillate between feeling like I do nothing about being an ally and then wanting to drop my whole life and quit everything and like go full activism. So I was wondering if you all could speak to like, what does a middle ground look like for being an ally? Like, how can I be helpful and still like follow my other dreams and other passions and, and fit, yeah. like, being helpful. I think, like, I have friends who are, like, on all parts of that spectrum. Like, my friend Taylor, who was like, Blair, I think I'm dropping out of school. She was at Tulane. And I was like, girl, you're wild. Call me later. And then she was like, Blair, I dropped out of school. Now I'm in uh, North Dakota fighting the uh, pipeline from being built. And I was like, girl, okay. Like, so <laughs> that's one path, right? Girl, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I support you 100% because we're friends. You know what I mean? But, um, like, I don't know if I would have done that, um, but I support her. Um, I think it's all about the access you have, right? Like if you tell somebody, um, you know, there's a protest happening right now here in Austin about veganism. And so that's a very, you know, important stance that a lot of people have. But also like is, are, is your movement work making vegetables cheaper for families who can't afford the food and nutrients required to be a healthy vegan, you know? So thinking about the way that your approach can be more accessible. So I think that everybody has a role in the movement, finding out what you're good at and realizing that your path isn't separate from the activist path, like find ways to build activism into what you're doing. Um, had I finished law school, then I would have been looking at doing pro bono cases with corporate cases or whatever I would have been doing. I was definitely going to drop out. Everybody knew it. Um, but like just figuring out ways, like if you're in a position of hiring or if you're not and your friend is like making sure that she understands, like not throwing out names that aren't white like just mm. making sure that you're being a person that is disrupting the spaces around you that are toxic because even my mom when I first started wearing hijab she was like no daughter of mine and literally took the hijab off of my head when we were in the grocery store and so I can't just be like fine mom you're not in the movement she's my mom you know and so it was upon me then to explain to her what the hijab meant to me to like you know talk through her talk through the biases she had and that's something we can all do and there's very much activism in our daily lives whether that's giving your friends reading material challenging somebody when they you know call somebody the wrong thing or when they don't understand something so I think that's um, very middle ground but we can always level up you know like it doesn't always have to be you donating money not everybody can do that but if you care about voting rights looking at what it means to register folks to vote in your in your apartment building or what it means to drive folks to the polls or uh, volunteer. So I think that there are so many different ways and you don't have to drop everything. It's so true. I mean, it's like it's like the activism takes on this like really hefty, like heavy label sometimes, but it literally is the the time. I honestly believe like when people are like, I want to change the world like we none of us can actually change the world. But those tiny, tiny things that we do. Well, not alone. Not alone. And, and, and those tiny things that we do that create connection, create empathy, that call somebody out. Those moments, like if we all did them, if we all did one of those today, literally everybody at South by Southwest, if everybody called somebody out that was doing something douchey or not cool and or racist. Or picked up some trash, like. Picked up some trash or recycled, cause that's not really happening. Um, <laughs> I just had to say that we had a conversation about that. Um, but, but honestly, that has huge ripple impact and it's, it's important. It really is. And I think about like, even like we're talking about 
Well, I think a lot about the Me Too movement. You know, you have a lot of men who say, how do I participate? And it's like, well, listen, pass the mic and also express your support. You know, that's that's huge because the power is in those groups. Mm. And so I think recognizing your privilege and your power and we all have it. All of us have it. I mean, I have privilege of living in a big city. I have privilege of uh, being born in a family that educated me, um, although I'm still paying off my law school, even though I am an actor, artist. Um, It sucks. Um, But, 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 you know, we all have privilege in some way, whatever that is, and recognizing that and owning up to that and, and speaking out about it, I think that matters. I love it. I think we have time for maybe one more quick question. Anyone? Or comment, or just, tell us about your work wife, or your favorite BFF. Work wife story. Ooh, God. The question da- was... How much time do you have, lady? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> What's your favorite thing about your mom? Oh. My favorite thing about... Such a good question. Oh, I could talk all day. My mom is amazing. My favorite thing about my mom is how warm she is. She's the kind of person that... She could be in a room with someone who's had the worst day ever and make them open up and make them smile. She's the warmest person you'll ever meet. She's so, she just has that bubbly thing where people, I've seen people, people like want to talk to her. She's that kind of person. Um, well, uh, a lot of my work is actually inspired by my mother. So if you ever look me up, you'll learn about that. There's a movie, there's a play, there's another movie coming out. But my mother, to me, one of the things I love about us is, um, you know, I look like this, which is, you know, Bruno Mars meets the Karate Kid. Um, Slang. Yeah. Slash maybe a little Halle Berry. And, um, but my mother, uh, is, you know, she wears hijab, she wears shalvar kameez, a very, become a very, you know, uh, introverted, uh, Pakistani Muslim human woman. Um, but, and so if you look at us, we look like complete opposites. But honestly, the reason I don't ever look at anybody's exterior and think I understand them, um, it's because I know that if you look at my mother and I, we are exactly the same, although we look so different. Um, when people are like, your energy, you're this, you're this, your smile, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, well, that's my mom, my mom and I. And it took some work to get there to see that. And um, but I. I hope your mom is listening. Oh, she's definitely not. (laughs) Oh, she's definitely not. It was my birthday yesterday, so she might be like, where's Fozia right now? Um, And she's not thinking that I'm doing this panel in any way, but um, um, she's a a gift to me, and I love her very much. So one of the things that I, now that I am no longer in school, um, I think about, I think about how much time I spent away from my mom because I was in school and it seems like such a, like such a, a way of simplify or, or kind of like simplifying the situation, but I really do think about it a lot. And her proximity to me to compassion and to literally just being a nice person reminds me how much nicer I need to be to others. And like her just consistent kindness really has just blown me away. It really blows me away whenever I'm around her. For me, my mom has like been through so many changes. I changed my name. I converted to Islam. I came out as a lesbian. Then I came out as bisexual. And then... I came out on national television and I got tattooed. Like she's just been like 
go Blair, except for the hijab, <laughs> but now she's cool about it. Um, so I think that my mom, she's just like, she rolls with the punches and she calls it like she sees it and she battles the trolls in my mentions and like, and in real life. Like when I got, um, when I was getting harassed, she made a video and like posted it on Twitter and it was just like, leave my baby alone. Um, you can follow her at Chrissy Lupu on Twitter. She's hilarious. Um, but she's just like so real and there's like not, a mean spirited bone in her body. Like she does make mistakes like we all do, but she's willing to learn and grow and go with all the, you know, just roll with the punches. I swear I didn't plan this, but learn and grow together is the unofficial motto of this podcast. So well done. That's a perfect place to wrap. Thanks my amazing panelists for being here. Y'all were all amazing. And thanks to y'all. I we couldn't have done this without y'all. So thanks. Minty listeners, what's your relationship like with your work wife? Did this episode make you want to call her up and thank her for being a friend? Let us know. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You, on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast, and as always, we love your emails at MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. Stuff Works.com.